through any merit of our own. But through Christ alone, we have life. And more than that, he lives in us. Thank you for the truth of the gospel, the uh, slain of the old man, the living of a new man in your son, with your spirit. We ask now, Lord, that you would, uh, as the unfolding of your word gives light, that you would give light to your children, that it would renew us, and it would transform our minds, that it would inflame our affections for you, and make us more like Christ. Do this, we pray, as your word is preached, for the sake of your son's glory. Amen. You can be seated. You can also turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. That is, as Nick said, where we'll be coming out of today. Um, just like to say on a personal note, Sarah and I and the family are glad to be back. Uh, we always counted a blessing to not only see our family, uh, but our somewhat of a second church home family and it seems like every time we come here, the congregation has changed uh, locations or size or people or, or whatnot. So um, it is just great to see uh, you all again. And as I talk with Nick on the phone and he uh, raves about the congregation he is shepherding, uh, it's just, just wonderful to see the Lord's work going out in Vacaville and uh, among so many that we know. And, and in fact, um, I'm glad to be preaching again here because as I was reminded by someone I won't embarrass, uh, but her name rhymes with Tanae, uh, <laughs> that I wasn't the only one who remembered last time I was here, I preached under NyQuil. So uh, I'm glad to be back and hopefully the Lord do more this time than maybe he did uh, last time because I didn't remember a thing that happened. But we are going to look at Galatians 2.20 today. And just for the sake of context, let's read together Galatians 2.15 to 21. This is in the context of Paul's apostolic ministry defense. And this is his closing arguments. Uh, whether it's a lawyer or a preacher or any kind of orator or author, a conclusion matters, and so his closing arguments here are crucial for the proof that his gospel is true and that he had not run in vain. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me 
and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. We see Paul here, a man who is joyously exclaiming what he has found in redemption. 2.20 is a, uh, it is a boast, it is an exclamation of what Paul has found in redemption. He has found Christ, the Messiah, finally. He's found Christ, and he has found that his redemption is bound up in Christ, totally. And more than that, he has found that his redemption is Christ, and Christ alone. Redemption is a person. Redemption is not a place. It's not a state of being. And it is certainly not a performance of do's and don'ts. Redemption is a person. It is Christ Jesus himself. And faith in Christ brings the sinner into a loving and lively and victorious relationship with Christ. Paul, like the rest of us, prior to Christ was relationally broke, relationally starved, relationally barren. He was alone, separated from Christ, and his insistence by justification by works alone, according to the Torah, according to the law, left him not only a failure, but alone. He was separated from his Messiah. For him, salvation in that former life was a document. Salvation was a piece of paper. It was a tablet of stone. That was redemption for old Paul. That's redemption for everybody apart from Christ. What can I do to please God? So when he is countering the false teachers in Galatia, he strongly, strongly condemns any sort of salvation by merit, any sort of salvation by good works. And these Galatian false teachers were subtle. Uh, Martin Luther calls them merit hoarders because they hoarded the merit one must have to place themselves in the favor of God. They were merit hoarders. So he is addressing these false teachers, these merit hoarders, because they taught salvation by faith plus works. They were very subtle, very subtle. And in fact, you could read the book of Galatians and might actually read like a Twitter account. If something is not in context, you might have a, you might have a stumbling block before you. Something tripping you up. Really? And we'll, we'll get to this later, but do I really live in the flesh by faith alone? How come he doesn't add obedience in there? We'll get to that later. But he is isolating, and he has in his sights any form of self-righteous Christianity. 
which the Galatian false teachers were promoting. So subtle was it that even Peter and Barnabas fell into it in some measure. And we fall into it every day. If we don't wake up with the thought of Christ is everything for me, I need not do anything, and everything I do is, for grat- is, is from gratitude, I'm a legalist. I'm a legalist. I'm a Galatian false teacher. Paul's gospel of justification by faith alone has no merit at all. Personal obedience counts for nothing. It contributes nothing for salvation. And no amount of good works can improve the believer's standing towards God in the slightest. Paul had been down that road before, and so now that he has found Christ, he is personally united to Christ, and he exclaims, and he just blurts out in 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. You, you can teach all you want about these nickel and diming of obedience, but I've been crucified. That old man's long gone. He's dead. He's in the coffin. He's done. He's dead. I'm alive. And actually, I don't even really live. It's not even really about me living. It's about Christ living in me, through me, with me, on behalf of me. So this, this justification by faith alone leads to this wonderful relationship and union with Christ. So I first want to point out that this life we have in Christ, this vibrant, lively, loving life we have with Christ is a victorious life. It is a life that possesses victory through a vicarious crucifixion. Paul and the Christian can say, with, with victory in mind, I've been crucified. The Romans, they slaughtered thousands. And as a, a deterrent for any uprising or hostility, civil war, or, from the, or a message to their opponents, they would crucify thousands. And crucifixion always was a dreadful, shameful, and horrific death. And it meant, it was a symbol of shame, and it was a symbol of defeat. That person lost. That was hanging on the cross. But Paul actually turns the crucifixion, or the cross, to victory. Because he knows what has happened on the cross with Christ. He takes the symbol of shame and defeat, turns it into a symbol of victory. And he knows the real value of the cross of Christ. It was through the cross of Christ redemption has been laid, found, established. It was through the cross that the Son of God bore our wrath against sin. It was through the cross that forgiveness of sins came. It was through the cross we die. We live, and yet we die. There is that self-dilemma here Paul has, this self-conscious dilemma. Am I a dead Christian or a live Christian? Perhaps one of the best commentaries on 220 And that phrase, I have been crucified with Christ, is found in the verse prior. Verse 19, through the law, I died to the law. What does that mean? 
Through the law, I die to the law. The law showed the great sinfulness of man and our great need for righteousness. That we can never measure up. We can never obey the, the, the pure righteousness of God. And through the law came Jesus Christ, born under the law, who died according to the law for our sin. Thus Jesus' life, according to the law, became my benefit, who I was formerly guilty under the law. So Jesus lives a perfect life for me, according to the law, and the sin that would be against me, according to the law, he bore on the cross. And I die when Christ dies. And as um, Nick read earlier, but I would like to just read again, in God's providence, we get it twice. Romans 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him. Romans 6, 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So we are crucified with Christ so that we die. So that the life Christ dies is effective and representative of his people's lives. And they die too in him. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. So Jesus becomes a representative, curse-bearing image for his people. We, made in the image of God, fallen in sin. Christ, sent into the world as a representative, curse-bearing image to placate the wrath of God against our sin. Not Jesus' sin. It's perfectly holy and defiled. But our sin. So that two things would happen. One, we die. Our old self needs to die. And it's, it's a one-time death. I get it, we, we die daily, says Paul, but in a, in a self-disciplined way. But in a, in a one-time, objective, spiritually form We die once with Christ who died once. And not only does the man die, the old man die, but also the law, sin, death, and the devil are negated and neutralized against us because Christ took the law onto himself, fulfilled it completely. He paid the price for sin that was my price for sin. He died my death that I should have died. And my enemy, his enemy, the devil, was completely put under his power. Stronger man binding the strong man and plundering his house, taking his captives with him. So when we hear, I have been crucified with Christ, the old man dies in a very mysterious way. And the sin that reigned in me died. The sin that reigned in us died. I have a friend who constantly reminds me that every sin I do or every sin that I have is a forgiven sin. And that's true. And in addition to that, every sin we struggle with is a defeated sin. 
even the besetting sins, have been defeated by Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago. And your war with sin is with a defeated enemy. Yes, we ought to uh, mortify sin, as Paul would tell the Colossians. We should put off sin and put on righteousness. But the nail in the coffin for sin, for a condemning law, was done by Christ and by Christ alone. Also, we don't imitate Christ and we don't, we don't have to think that we have to crucify our sin. He did it all. We live in his victory. And absolutely, yes, we should walk in holiness and not have grace as a reason to sin. Not at all. Not at all. I've misunderstood the gospel, if that's what I think. But I don't imitate Christ. He has done it all. He has won the day. He has won the day for all his people. We don't atone for any sin. That's, that really must sink into our hearts. Because we have a natural proclivity to think we must atone for some sin. And you don't have to atone for any sin. Your way of dealing with sin is hiding in the crucifying, victorious life of Christ. And through that, gratefully obey, joyfully obey. Doesn't obedience have a place in my life? It absolutely does have a place in your life. But for no justification. The Galatian heresy is not uncommon with what we see today nor absolutely found in the Roman Catholic Church, which would blend a justification and a sanctification together. And Paul, Christ, the scripture shows, no, we are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone. And no amount of obedience after that moment of justification will atone for my sin or make God happier, or improve myself to Him, or impress Him. No amount of obedience will. We live by faith, faith alone, and then, and then of course, the last point of application in this point is, sin does not reign. I know it seems like it does, but it does not. It doesn't reign. It rained before, and you did its bidding. But it doesn't reign in the believer. It doesn't reign. It reigns in others who are non-Christians. And it reigns on the world, unchecked. But in the believer, sin has been deposed. The dominion and the, the tyrant which sin is has been dethroned by Christ. And so even though we do struggle with sin... And we still sin daily. It's no longer reigning in us. It's no longer controlling us, governing us. So where does the victory of sin lay? I've been crucified with Christ. 
You get over a sin or a sinful habit. How did that happen? Bible memorization, prayer, fellowship, means of grace. Maybe, 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 yes. Most definitely 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, when you were crucified with Christ, that's when Jesus put the death nail in the coffin for your sin. Killing your old man and giving you new life. Secondly, we see this new life grants us Christ as an alien resident in us. Christ is an alien resident, but living in us. And if the paradox of being crucified with Christ, meaning I actually live, is, uh, is something, it's even more. He builds on that paradox in the next sentence. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is Paul's dilemma of self. And, and most translations, unfortunately, smooth out the dilemma. They say, the ESV, I think even the NAS, it is no longer I who live. It is no longer I who live. But when in fact, very literally, it says, I live. Nevertheless, no longer. I live. Nevertheless, I no longer. Christ lives in me. And so you have that much clearer substitution. I'm a dead man, but in a dead living way. And Paul says, it's not even about me. It's not even about me not living, but Christ living in me, through me, with me, on my behalf. I live. Nevertheless, I don't. Christ lives in me. His vision of Christ in him wasn't just that Christ dwells in him, even though that's extremely rich. But actually, he comes to the verge, just the edge of reason and logic, and says, I, I don't even actually live anymore. Christ is living in me. He is the complete animating power and principle in my life. I'm a dead man. My life is dead to the law. Dead, dead, dead. Christ lives in me. So who lives? Because we're also, well, obviously living. We're breathing. Am I living or is Christ living in me? The man under the law, the old man, he was crucified with Christ. He died. The man under the law died. The man who was under Adam, the man who was living by merit, the man who was condemned by the law, the inner man, the man who boasted of religious accomplishments, that man's dead. That man's dead, dead. Fully dead. The man who thought he could approve himself to God by merit, good works, dead. Crucified. He no longer lives. The man who sin was uh, his tyrant and had sin had dominion over him, he's dead. That principle of death that lived in that man swallowed him up. And instead, a new man lives. A new creation. Christ's creation. Christ in that man. A man who is no longer under justification by law. A man who boasts in his weaknesses. A man who does not have sin reigning in his body any longer. A man who is, has a principle of life within him. That man lives. The man who has Christ in him. 
He lives. It's not actually just not me not living, but actually Christ living in me. Almost as if there's no distinction between Christ and me. I am Christ. And Christ is mine. One flesh, like a husband and wife. One flesh. So they are distinct, but inseparable. Distinct. There is the sinner, but there is the Savior. But they are inseparable. We say all the time that when God looks at me, he doesn't see me. He sees Christ's righteousness. That's a, that's a little, I think, lazily put because of how much Christ belongs to the sinner and how much the sinner belongs to Christ. Not to mention it just sounds like the Father puts up with you and Christ covers you. No, there is still you, but it's not just you, it's you and Christ. Luther, Martin Luther has an amazing commentary on Galatians and, and he says this, the person lives, but not for himself or representing himself. So you live, Christian, but not for yourself, not for the purpose of yourself, and actually not representing yourself. Who is this I when he says, not I? This is the I claimed by the law who was subject to fulfill its works. It is this person separated from Christ. This person Paul rejects. This person who lived apart from Christ belongs to death and hell. Thus he says, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. He is the form of my life, the ornament of my faith, as the color or light adorns the wall. He goes on and says, it is like this, Christ attached and joined to me, abiding in me, is this very life, my doing, my living, indeed the life I live, is Christ himself. Therefore Christ and I are one in this respect. Christ dwells in us. He, he lives in us locally. He dwells in us by the Holy Spirit. We are no longer alone. Jesus is a friend to sinners. He possesses me. I possess him. He dwells in me as he does in his own temple. We are never separated from each other. He dwells in me locally. But in addition to that, Christ living in me means he dwells in me instrumentally. He lives for me. He lives in my place. He represents me. It's no longer just me at the bar of God's justice, but Christ in me. His righteousness, my righteousness, by faith. My sins are his. So he lives instrumentally in me, representing the Christian before the Father. And it is no longer just us living in a sinfully crucified body, but him purifying us from within. So he's living in us, for us, on behalf of us, through us. He's living out his divine life through broken, 
jars of clay. Resurrection power of the Son of God dwells in the believer and lives out the will of God. And, and we, both in active dimensions and in passive dimensions, work with him, rejoice with him, pray with him. We would, as the Bible constantly says, walk with him every step of the way. So there's no more, there's no more Derek. There's Derek in Christ. He's no longer known alone. There's no more Nick. It's Nick in Christ. There's no more Amy. Amy in Christ. Never does the Father recognize you as an individual apart from Christ, but, but Kyle in Christ, the Christian in Christ, firmly bound and united together. Christ taking you as himself and you taking Christ as yourself. The sinner and Savior inseparably united. He would say this in another way in Colossians 3, 4. Paul, Christ, who is your life. Who is your life. His life is yours. Your life belongs to him. His righteousness, yours. His grace, yours. His glory, yours. His kingdom, yours. Your sin, his your enemies, his enemies. Your affliction, his. Your suffering, his suffering. So bound together, a one flesh union. So then the richness of the Christian life really depends upon this. What do I know to be Christ's? Because everything he has, he shares with me. Everything that belongs to Christ, he shares with his people. So that David in Psalm 16, 2 would say, I have no good apart from you, Lord. I have no good apart from you. I'm not even known. I'm not even living. I am a, I am a if I am a, a, a flower on a bush that has been severed, I dry up in the hot sun and I'm, I'm done, I'm wilted, I'm, I'm a goner. But as long as I'm attached to that vine, I live, and the nourishing, life-giving power of the Holy Spirit flows into me because Christ lives in me. You would never have such a warm relationship with a piece of paper. Because redemption is a person. It's not a stone tablet. It's not a, a, a legal pad with strict demands of adherence. Redemption is a person. There's no personal favor for the law. It's do this or die. And in Christ, I've lived for you. I've died for you. You are mine. Take all of me for all of you. All of your problems met in me. And all of my riches and glory and grace now flow to you. Lastly, we see that such a personal redemption is carried out by continual faith, not obedience. Now we, now we are getting into the law of, or into the weeds of law-keeping and faith. 
But let's remember this statement here. He is, he is fighting against justification by faith and works. Faith, yes. Faith and works, absolutely not. Should the Christian delight in obeying the Lord? Of course. Is there something wrong with a Christian's heart if he does not delight in obedience? Yes. Does the Christian's success in obedience or sanctification contribute at all towards his salvation? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Does your justification rest on your obedience? Absolutely not. Your sanctification will have strengths and weaknesses. And praise the Lord, he does not justify us by our strength of sanctification and surely the weakness of it. So Paul is drawing a now-then contrast here. The life I now live, I live in the flesh, in the, in the in faith of the Son of God. I now live no longer by law. So you could read verse 20, and the life, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. I don't live by law-keeping. I live by faith in the Son of God. The whole Christian life is a faith. And a living a life by faith is positively a lot of things. It's trust, it's adoration, it's even obedience. But to be very, very clear, what a life of faith is not, is not trying to impress Christ. We cannot at all, the slightest, ever in a million years, impress the Lord of glory. And faith always pulls from the reservoir of Christ's righteousness for himself. Faith is always pulling what's Christ belongs to me. I don't have to impress Christ anymore. I don't have to coax him or cajole him so that he would love me more. I rest on this alone. He is my righteousness and the Father is fully pleased with the righteousness of Christ. Luther goes on to say, a life of faith says, I exist in Christ, in the righteousness of Christ. And Christ says, I am that sinner. His sins and death are mine because he adheres to me by faith and I adhere to him by grace. So Paul then ends this exclamation, this wonderful testimony by saying, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. He, is, he has loved me once. He gave himself up for me once. He doesn't have to keep proving his own love for me. And I don't have to do anything that would convince him or impress him to love me more. He has given me his life, his death, his resurrection, his very spirit. There's nothing else for him to give. There's no more for heaven to give. God the Father gave his very best, his 
brilliantly glorious son for sinners dead, hostile to God, enemies of God. And in that place, he loved us. One act of love, one crucifixion, one resurrection is what the Christian would say, that one act I continually pull for my benefit by faith. He need not prove his love over again. He loved me in the past, and he loved me decisively. It's not a, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. That is a hellish, devilish idea of God's love, which is so bountiful and generous and pure and graceful, gracious. No, you can see here that Paul is so much wrapped up in Christ that he pulls down this one truth. He loved me and gave himself up for me when I was yet a sinner. How much more would he never, ever, ever revoke his love for me than I am now his brother? If he loved me while I was an enemy, how much more am I wrapped up in him in his favor now that I am his brother and friend? And we have this wonderful thing here. He does not say, even though it is true, he loved us or he gave himself up for us, the church, the bride. Even though it is true that Jesus gave up himself for his entire bride, such is the love of Christ that he would leave the 99 and go after the one. The, the, the purity and generousness of Christ's love is that he would do it again, Paul believes, just for himself. Just for one sinner. Let alone a billion. Paul is convinced the love of Christ is so rich, so without dimension, and the giving up of himself unto death is so bountiful with blessings He continually draws from that reservoir by faith. By faith it is mine. By faith he loves me. By faith it is mine. And that compels loving obedience. That compels gratitude. There's no place in there for guilt. To obey by guilt. To obey because I think it's what I ought to do. No. The love of Christ is received by faith again and again and again. And no piece of paper, no law would love. No law would die for sinners. No law would Love eternally and be bound with sinners. Redemption is not justification by merit. It's by faith alone, in Christ alone. And so we see here, redemption is a person that kills our old man and it frees us from the law, sin, death, devil, 
that person abides within us, living in us, for us, with us. He lives through us. And when I live by faith, I don't have to impress Christ the slightest. Doesn't that just take the burden off your shoulders? I don't have to impress Christ at all. I have nothing that would impress him. If from eternity past, 1 Timothy says, he, or 2 Timothy, he gave himself up for me before the foundations of the earth, I'm his forevermore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. What a rich, rich gift your son is to us. Open our eyes and remind us that he is our full and complete salvation. He is wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. He is our life. Cause us to be hid in him, delight in him. We pray this in his name. Amen.